Hello. It's some considerable time now since we were last looking at the uh, book of Revelation. And so let me just remind you where we had got to. We are in chapter 2 of Revelation. And we've been looking at the letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Letters dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John, who was then instructed to send the letters incorporated in the book of Revelation, which we have now, to the seven churches. And uh, we're coming this session to the letter to the church at Pergamon. And I'm going to read that letter, therefore, uh, so that we know what it is we are discussing or talking about. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These are things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days uh, when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, therefore, else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we are considering, or was a city, uh, with an identity crisis. It's sometimes called Pergamon, and that's the na name I shall use, but it's also known as Pergamos, and sometimes even Pergamum. Now, Pergamon was the most northerly city of the seven cities where the churches were located, and it was basically a Greek city. 
but was at this time, of course, when the Apostle was writing the book of Revelation under the rule of Rome. But it was essentially Greek in nature, and it therefore was a, a, a centre of Greek learning. It had a library, second only in size to the great the great library at Alexandria, which was destroyed by the Romans, of course. And uh, it was a centre of Greek culture generally. Uh, but it was also a centre of government and had been uh, down the ages uh, a very important government centre. Now, of course, it was ruled by Roman law, so that there was an admixture, a mingling of cultures. But above all, for our purposes, it was a centre of pagan worship. And the city was dominated by a temple, the Temple of Athena, and in particular, there was an altar, grand altar, uh, which was known as the Altar of Zeus. And the temple and the altar were dedicated to Athena and Zeus, Zeus being the chief god among the Greek gods. And it is for this reason that it attracted many visitors who had come to worship at these major religious centres. And it is, I think, that which causes the glorified Lord Jesus Christ to talk about a Pergamon being Satan's seat and where Satan dwells. There was this dominance of pagan religion. And so the Christian church was squeezed, as it were, between pagan religion and Roman persecution. The grand altar of Zeus is, in fact, pictured in the background to this video. What you are seeing here is a reproduction of that grand altar, uh, which was built and uh, now exists in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Remains from the original altar were brought back to Germany by German archaeologists in modern times, and a, a museum was set up to display these remains, and this altar was reproduced. And that is what you see behind me. It is quite likely that when the Lord Jesus says that Satan has his throne at Pergamon, he is referring to this altar, because seen from a distance, the altar looks a little bit like an armchair or a throne, and here sacrifices would be made to 
Zeus and Athena and possibly other gods. And it is also possible that there were sexual services offered here in the name of the pagan religions of that day. So this was the environment that the church at Pergamon had to face. And if we now turn to the text of scripture, uh, the verses we have read, we're going to see, first of all, how the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with the threats from both pagan religion and Roman persecution. Their situation is not all that different from our own today. That is why these scriptures are so relevant to our present modern situation. Uh, we are also, in our present culture, a court between the secular religion of our day, which has no place for God in its thinking, and also legal instruments laid down by the government that give freedom to anti-Christian sentiment and activities. So then we do have a, a, a parallel problem to that endured by the Christian church in the first century in this great city of Pergamon. Now, each of these seven letters, as we have seen before, begins with a self-introduction by the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and these self-introductions are descriptive of himself. And they're all borrowed from the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, let me just remind you of verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamon, right. Incidentally, I have to remind you every time that the word angel here means simply messenger. It's not, not a supernatural being, but the person or persons who were responsible for bringing the message of the gospel to that particular church and reading out uh, epistles received from the apostles. To the messenger of the church in Pergamos or Pergamon write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that's the, the only thing Christ says about himself. In other letters, he has two or three statements of description. But in this one, just this single statement, that he is the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. And to understand that a little more fully, we have to go back, of course, to in that first chapter, we find the Lord described in John's first 
right vision. And in verse 14, uh, in verse 13, I suppose we should start, that we read this of chapter 1. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represented the seven churches, of course, in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, there you have the verses from which uh, uh, the letter takes the statement that Christ has the sharp two-edged sword. And you'll notice in chapter 1, it is protruding from the mouth of Christ. Now, remember, <clears throat> the book of Revelation is written in an apocalyptic style, which means that almost everything that is mentioned and described is symbolic of some spiritual truth. And the sword protruding from the mouth of Christ and, and mentioned uh, here uh, later in this particular verse, a uh, particular letter, it is spoken of again as the sword of my mouth. That's in verse 16 of chapter 2. So it doesn't need uh, too much um, imagination for us to recognize that the sword referred to here represents the word of Christ, that which proceeds out of his mouth. In Deuteronomy 8, we, we read that uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And there are several references in the New Testament to uh, a sword as representing the word of God. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, uh, in the description of the Christian's complete armor, uh, we have the statement that the believer should take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, in that particular verse in Hebrews, the first two references, dividing soul and spirit and bones and marrow, are, are simply 
ways of emphasizing things that are very difficult to do, very difficult to separate in your thinking the soul and the spirit, and very difficult in practice to separate the marrow, which is the inside of the bone, from the bone itself. So they're just uh, illustrations. The real statement is that the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we have Christ introducing himself by stating that he has a sharp two-edged sword, that his word is powerful, that it's a weapon, that it is something which is effectual in a fight. And that fight, of course, is against the unbelieving world in which both the Christians of Pergamon and we ourselves are located. So it's relevant. The word of God is powerful. Uh, that, that's the emphasis in Hebrew. The word of God is living and powerful. Living in the sense that it can both produce and destroy life. Something that acts upon the mind of man. And I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's statement in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, where he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not rooted in human nature. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down imaginations and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And this is what it means for the Word of God to be living and sharp. And so with all the enemies which uh, surround the Christian church in Pergamon, we have, they have a defense. But uh, strangely, as we shall see in a moment, the Lord was not going to use that sword in this instance on the pagan worshippers or the Roman authorities. He's going to use it on the church itself. And that is the heart of the message of the letter to Pergamon. Well now, the word of Christ is the scriptures. The word of God is the scriptures. All scripture is breathed out by God, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, and that is the primary meaning whenever we come across the sword as an illustration of the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and the Word of God is the Holy Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. But we must remember that the Word of Christ actually extends beyond Scripture. 
for it was he who was the creator of all things. You go back to the opening verse of the book of Hebrews where we read uh, God who at various times and in different ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son who is the outshining brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Earlier on I missed out the bit where we're told that uh, Christ is not only heir of all things but was the one through whom God, the triune God, created the universe, the ages. And so in creation and in the sustenance of the entire universe, it is the word of Christ that operates. And so that means that the sword of Christ is not only going to be used through the means and medium of the scriptures, but that it can be operated directly uh, upon the affairs of this world. It can be operated upon a uh, providence. It can be operated upon uh, the nations in a direct way as God rules and overrules the history of mankind and the circumstances of individual churches and individual believers. The word of Christ is, is ultimately powerful. And I think this is the message that the Lord wants to get across to the church at Pergamon right at the beginning. The message that he is in total control of their situation, of their problems, of their needs, of the contemporary history of <clears throat> a mankind which they are experiencing in a hard way. Christ is sovereign. He is the express image of God the Father. He is the one through whom the triune God manifests itself in all things. The old Puritan John Owen said, as regards operations, God works not but through the Son. In other words, everything God does in this world is mediated or brought to us or implemented, perhaps is a better word, by the second person of the triune God. Christ is all-powerful. And therefore, whatever the Church of Pergamon experiences is in the hands of God and will be overruled for the good of the kingdom of God and for the good of the individuals, even in the midst of their suffering and for the glory of God. Well then, let us move on. The introduction is, of course, followed by these familiar words, I know your works. Uh, ESV 
drops the word works here in this case, I think, um, I know where you dwell. Uh, but this knowledge that Christ is speaking about is the knowledge of uh, omniscience and the knowledge of omnipotence. He doesn't say, I know about your situation. I know about your needs. I know about your problems. I know about your tribulations. No, he's talking about knowing them in an intimate sense. He is the one who is actually walking among the golden lampstands, which represent the churches. And he's not just meandering around aimlessly. He is walking among the lampstands in order to observe them, in order to tend them, in order to deal with any problems, in order to fill the bowls with oil, as it were, so that Christ is, is intimately involved and intimately knowledgeable and intimately concerned with the affairs of the church at Pergamon. I know, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Well, that is a reference, I think, to the Temple of Zeus. Um, we can't prove that, but it's quite likely to be. And Christ continues, And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so the church at Pergamon, like most of the other churches, was clearly under persecution. Between the hammer of pagan religion and the anvil of Roman persecution. But there is something interesting here. This verse reads as if there had been only one martyrdom in Pergamon. He mentions just one person, and uh, other letters mention a plurality of persons. And uh, it is something I cannot prove, but I strongly suspect that the authorities, who the Romans were the only people who had the authority to put people to death, that the authorities had taken Antipas and had made him an example. Antipas was executed as an example to the Christians, to the whole church, to keep its head down. You see, one of the great problems that the Roman authorities had with Christians was that Christians had another king, King Jesus, and they bowed down only to him. Now this was a time when it was beginning to become popular for uh, Roman Caesars to be deified, to be declared gods. And it's quite possible that Antipas, uh, probably a leader of the church, had spoken out against this deification of Roman Emperor, and he had been executed to warn the Christians not to cross the line. Generally speaking, the Romans were rather indulgent 
of the religions of the various nations that they conquered. But the Christians had this particular problem, that they worshipped another king. Their king was Christ. And the Romans said, oh no, so you're challenging our emperor. Watch out. Christ also says that the church had not denied his faith. Christ also says that the church had held fast to his name. Now, usually in scripture, a name uh, is another way of saying a person. I think it's quite possible that in this case, there is a narrower meaning that holding fast to Christ's name meant that this church had continued to proclaim Christ as king. Not just to believe in him as their God, not just to obey him as their master, but to promote him, to preach him, to declare that he was king of kings and lord of lords. But anyway, it's quite clear that it was a church threatened with persecution and threatened in such a way as to silence them. Now that's important because today we are faced uh, with that kind of pressure as Christians. Uh, we are told that you can have your opinions in, in your own mind. We don't mind what you believe but we do mind what you say. And if you say things that we regard as antisocial, as politically incorrect, if you speak out in favor of Christian morality and so on, then you are a target for persecution. And that is becoming increasingly frequent certainly in the UK, I think it is true also in, in the USA and, and almost certainly other countries. Christians will be left alone in many countries if they keep quiet. But if they stand up and speak and preach and declare biblical truth, biblical morality, biblical faith, biblical belief about creation, biblical statements and um, ethics, all these things. We stand up and make these things known publicly. We are going to increasingly, I believe, get into trouble with those authorities. So there's a warning from the church at Pergamon. However, as the letter continues, we look now at verse 15, we find that Christ has some problems with the church. He has praised the church for remaining true to his name, to standing up for their beliefs, but they have a problem. He said, I have a few things against you. Now, please don't think that a few things, that expression, uh, means that he has against them several minor things. 
he has against them several major thinkers and things which threatened to destroy the witness of the church. Well, then what are these things? Because, he says, you have there, that is among the church in their membership, as it were, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now this is a, a very sad situation. Christ has things against the whole church because the whole church was tolerating in its membership groups of people who taught things that were utterly contrary to the gospel, utterly contrary to the apostolic doctrine, contrary to the word of God. And we're told what they are, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, these are things that were absolutely common and um, central in some ways to pagan religion. And remember, these people lived in a, a, a city which was dominated by pagan religion. So it's quite likely that those people who had the doctrine of Balaam had simply brought into the church upon their conversion practices that they considered perfectly normal uh, and that they had used and, and, and practiced before they became Christians. They, they brought them in. And the church leaders, the preachers, the instructors had not either recognized this or did not take too much notice of it. There's an old saying that says, if you can't beat them, join them. And um, maybe there were some in the church who said, well, a little bit of paganism makes us more acceptable to the authorities and to the city at large. It doesn't hurt anybody eating things offered to idols. Well, just, just food, you don't have to worry about that. And sexual immorality, well, that's just natural. And, of course, today we face a situation where sexual immorality and similar things are not only tolerated in certain churches, but that people who practice sexual immorality, as defined by Scripture, are actually promoted to high office in the church. So we can't sit in judgment upon this church. These things are happening all around us perhaps not in the kind of churches that, that uh, we are uh, associated with, but certainly in churches generally, things which once were considered to be reasons for expulsion from a church are now applauded as alternative lifestyles and are welcomed into the church. We want to welcome everybody into the church, they say. We don't want to exclude anyone.
Well, that is the climate of moral opinion that we, we face today. Now, you, you may say, well, who, who was Balaam? Uh, and i just briefly point out that the story of Balaam is told in the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 20 to 25. Uh, and it is set in time when the people of Israel, having been liberated from bondage in Egypt, were making their way to the promised land of Canaan. And as they went through the various wildernesses south of the Dead Sea and, and, and eastwards to come around to the east side of the River Jordan, they had to pass through a number of small kingdoms. Now, they were very careful because there were a lot of them, possibly as many as two million. They took the trouble to send in advance to any kingdom that they were going to traverse to ask permission to pass through the land, uh, to, to ask for safe passage through their land and promise not to destroy their crops or consume them uh, or damage their pastures. We just want to come through your country, through your property. And some kings said, no, on no account are we going to let you come through our country. And Balak, king of Moab, was one such person. He said, no, you can't come through. But then when he, um, he caught sight, possibly from a mountain of the uh, Israelite encampment on his border, he realized that there were so many Israelites that he did not have the resources to resist them in military terms. And so he adopted plan B. Now, plan B was to send for this prophet called Balaam, who was a prophet for hire, who would make prophecies, curse people and bless people uh, for payment. And so he got Balaam up to curse the Israelites. And Balaam went in order to earn his fee, but the Lord overruled Balaam. And every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, he in fact blessed them instead, much to the uh, annoyance and irritation of Balak. Three times he took Balaam to different places and said, now prophesy and curse Israel. And three times Balaam blessed them. And then Balaam of his own accord went and blessed them for a fourth time. Well, then they had to adopt plan C. And plan C was quite different. It was the idea of sending young and attractive Moabite women down to the Israelite camp to fraternize with the Israelites and to get into sexual relationships with the young men of Israel. And this they did with great success from their point of view. Now, we're not told in the book of Numbers that Balaam put Balak up to this, but this is what we're told here in the book of Revelation. Balaam suggested plan C. Balak followed it, and there was a great defection of the Israelites, who, of course, were under strict commandments not to intermarry 
or have sexual relationships of any kind with the pagan nations around them. And this, this certainly prevented Israel from proceeding until it was dealt with in a, a terrible way. Uh, young men who had offended in this fashion were all executed. And the sin of Israel was purged in that way. And they continued on their way to the promised land. Uh, but you see how, how important it is to us today that the doctrine of Balaam is being practiced and embraced in many so-called Christian churches. And it will have exactly the same effect upon those churches as it had upon Israel in the wilderness. It will stop them dead in their tracks and they will make no progress. But the great problem is that those churches who stand fast against the doctrines of Balaam are going to be hounded, they're going to be criticized, they're going to be persecuted because they don't fall in line with the spirit of the age. So let us beware and be aware of that situation. Now finally for this session he goes on to say thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, all that we know about the Nicolaitans, which is not a great deal, is that they were followers of a man called Nicholas, and that they indulged in exactly the same practices as Balaam. So in that same church, you've got the Balaamites, if I may call them that, followers of Balaam's teaching. And you've got the Nicolaitans. And, and they were both doing the same thing. So why are they separated? Why does Christ speak of them as two different groups when he could have lumped them all together as one? Well, uh, to be honest, I don't know. But there is one thing that might account for it. Uh, first of all, that the Balaamites were, as I said a little while ago, people who had simply, almost by accident, brought their pagan practices into the church when they were converted and had not been rebuked or stopped by the church leadership. Whereas the Nicolaitans were a definite heretical sect with a very clear idea of propagating their views throughout the Christian church. And that was a greater danger because the Balaamites could be taught better. Than. But these people were crusaders for the corruption of the Christian church. Well, those were the problems. And then finally in verse 16, the Lord says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We finish where we started because we're going to develop that and the remaining verses in the next session. But do notice that it is the church that has to repent and it is the deviants, the Balaamists and the Nicolaitans whom God and Christ is going to fight against with the sword of his mouth. So you see, you've got 
two different things here. You've got the threat of the sword to the deviant peoples, and you've got the call for repentance to the whole church. And that is surely because the church had not taken any steps to cleanse themselves of these deviant beliefs, ideas and practices, but they had indulged them, they had allowed them to continue, and they had done nothing about it. Well, we'll see more of that next time.